There's a man teaching at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. His name is Jared Wilson. Jared C. Wilson, if you look at his, uh, his books. He's one of my favorite writers. And uh, Jared Wilson made a comment one time that if you accept the parts of the Bible you like and you reject the parts you don't, it's not God you worship, but yourself. And uh, the insight into that statement is that we come to the Word of God needing to humbly receive all of Scripture to us and uh, to internalize the whole counsel of God for our discipleship. And Jared Wilson is right that if we come to the Bible and we say, well, I like this and not that, I'll lean toward this and reject that, then in the end, what you're trying to craft is something that ends up in your own image according to your own likeness and preferences. So I think he's right. That if you accept the parts of the Bible you like and you reject the parts you don't, it's not God you worship, but yourself. That means when we come to the Word of the Lord, we come with an eagerness, with a posture of saying, Lord, I don't know how this word and these uh, instructions from Proverbs, for example, will necessarily strike my heart. But I pray, Lord, that you would give me a humble open-mindedness to be guided by your word. It's indeed the case that the book of Proverbs confronts us with areas of Christian living that we should focus on. And the subject of our mouth or our tongue is a frequent theme because it is an ever an ever-present reality in our own lives, we're always doing some sort of talking to someone or typing or texting or sharing or posting or what have you. And so we're always dealing with the matter of words. We can't escape it. We find out that the God of Scripture is a God of words, not only giving us the Scriptures as special revelation, but in the beginning creates the heaven and the earth saying, let there be light, a God whose speech brings life and flourishing. We could make an argument that the book of Proverbs is trying to get us to be faithful image bearers then that our tongues would be like a tree of life for others or a fountain of life as the image in tonight's passage uh, passage, uh, takes it. This section tonight is uh, one we want to focus on for our sanctification, for the greater goal of glorifying God in all things. And it is a unit, a subunit within chapter 16, verses 20 through 24, that hit on this idea of speech. But here's the direction it's going to take. We know that it is in our own best interest that we have controlled tongues and wise words. It wants to really help us meditate on the effects publicly and socially that a wise tongue will have. The first thing it's going to put forward is what's behind a wise heart, and namely attention to the word, giving thought to the word. And discovering what is good. Let's look together in verse 20 that sets up this unit on speech. This is about the value of reflection on the word. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. There have been some interpreters who say, well, I don't know if we should take this as the actual scripture. Maybe we could simply translate this like, whoever gives thought to a matter will discover good. As if this is just about general living. And and at the same time, I would want to say, well, that also matters in principle in Proverbs, that we not be rash, but rather prudent in giving thought to our steps and to our words. However, this verse is probably like chapter 13 and in verse 13, which says, whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. 
And it has to do with blessing or good that is acquired by one's commitment to the word of God. That's what it means in Proverbs 13, 13, and likely the meaning here. That whoever gives thought to the word is about the revealed word worthy of our meditation and thought. Whoever gives thought to it will discover good. This means that the benefit of knowing scripture requires your participation. Did you see how that's required here in verse 20? Whoever gives thought to it. Okay, so we think about all kinds of things. We're reflecting and dreaming and we're envisioning and we're listening and we're processing. All, life's coming at us all the time with different things. This says, all right, but what about the word? Do you give thought to it? It reminds us of Psalm 1, that the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates. This is not about a life that's like, all right, I've got a bunch of stuff to do, and see what would be my verse for the day, you know, Ezekiel 46.1, and just kind of trying to get on to what matters more. Just kind of a random turning to things, not giving much thought to any kind of uh, system or goal, much less pausing and taking in prayerfully and humbly the Word of God. Giving thought is something that takes time. This says to you, don't you realize the benefit for your soul if you will take time with the Word? And I'm convinced that we make time for what we believe will benefit us. People think about jobs and family and friendships and uh, places to eat and entertainment sources, things that in some way have a kind of encouraging or, or a relaxing recreational benefit to us, we make time for those things. Because let's just be quite honest, you make time for what you think is most important. So this means, this inescapable principle applied to the word is, well, do I have time in my schedule that I'm setting apart? Even daily to be before the word of God to give thought to it. Because there is discovery that awaits it's the picture of the excitement of joyful discovery of seeing, look, I've read this, maybe this chapter or this book so many times and I've never stopped to notice this before. And it's like you've discovered something for the first time, even though it might not be altogether unfamiliar to you. But it's the joy of patient meditation. It's like chewing on something with your brain. Where you, you, you're given this uh, luscious meal and you're like, listen, I don't want to just scarf this down. This is so good. I'm just going to take my time with this dish, okay? I'm just going to enjoy every bite. I'm going to swallow it down and enjoy it and, and take my time with it because it is so good. Verse 20 says, whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. Friends, that's a promise. You can trust that if you will make time for your heart before the Word of God to read and to think about the Word of God and to pray over the Word of God, that it is difficult to overestimate the good that will be for your soul. Blessed is he who trusts in the Lord, the Word says. Verse 20. I think this latter part of the line, this latter part of the verse, confirms that we have the Word of God in view in the first line. Because verse 20 ends with a focus on trusting the Lord. And we learn what it is to trust the Lord and who God is and what He's made known by reflecting on His Word. In fact, 
We might find it to be the experience that as we open the word of God together and we pray for the Lord to guide us and to help us, that we find ourselves more trusting in God afterward than beforehand. And that an effect of the word of God upon our heart is indeed a soul enriching thing. That means we give attention to the word of God. And I don't think this is an overstatement what I'm about to say. I think I can bear this out with evidence and support from all the Proverbs. That if we want to be wise men and women, we cannot neglect the word of God. We just cannot. And I don't mean, okay, well, but I I come and I gather with corporate worship uh, on, on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings. All well and good. And we are called to do those things. And so praise God that we do these things. However, we cannot neglect the word of God that is to be daily upon our minds and hearts like the blessed man of Psalm 1. So I, I wonder if the disconnect with many professing believers is they're just not convinced it's going to bring them the kind of good that the Word of God says it will. They're just suspicious. They might even find overall parts of the Bible quite boring or they're unsure about it or they're like, yeah, I just, I don't get it. And so they're impatient and they wish they knew more than they did at the time. And they look at all the study that might be ahead of them and they think, this just seems so overwhelming. I'll let someone else do all this for me. And so in verse 20, we're called here to give thought, which is a picture of meditation and attention. And it goes back to the principle that we know we operate according to in life all the time. We will make time for what we think is important to us. And how should that apply here with our relationship to the Bible? Well, I think the way that looks, friends, is we realize in all the confusions of life and all the deceptions around us, we have 66 books of divine truth for our consumption, for our nourishment. So we open the Word of God. And we don't just read a random phrase or a verse here or there. We read paragraphs or sections or even an entire chapter. And we pray for the Lord to help. And the treasures of the Word of God would strike us and stand out to us in new ways. What if we open the Word of God and say, Lord, as I meditate on Your Word, help me to do as Solomon said and to discover what is good. To see and to taste of what Your Word teaches. If we give that kind of attention... If we attend to the word of God and have that effect upon us, trusting in the Lord, verse 20 says, blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Friend, don't you want to be blessed by the Lord? Don't you want to discover what is good for your soul? Then see here the indispensable reality of the word of God's role in your discipleship. And the effect on us is wisdom. In verse 21 The wise of heart is called discerning and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. If someone's giving thought to the word of God, like verse 20 says, and they are trusting in the Lord and they are meditating on the word of God, the word of God does not return void. This means as we meditate on the word of God and are shaped by the Holy Spirit using the word of God, we grow. Praise God. We grow. We grow in our understanding and we grow in our awareness and amazement of the gospel and our gratitude unto God and our call to walk humbly before him. The things that the Lord grows us in and guides us through is part of this Christian life. And in verse 21, as we grow, the wise of heart is what we become. Heart naturally is not wise in the book of Proverbs. In fact, we're told that just take the examples of youthfulness. 
or the generation of young children. And the book of Proverbs says folly. That's what's bound up in the heart of the child. So what is needed for the child and the young adult and the adult across their, their life to fear and know the Lord? Giving attention to the word. Not just, you know, passively sort of disengage with the Word of God in one ear and out the other. We're talking about giving attention to the Word of God because this is not just any other book. This is the Bible. This is the Holy Word of God. And it is to be received as the Word of God for His people to guide and nourish us in our souls. Oh, how we need this. And the effect is to grow wise of heart. To be wise of heart and called something must mean in verse 21 by implication, someone outside of you is calling you this. Look at how the line works in verse 21. The wise of heart is called. So it is called by others. Discerning. That as we grow in the word of God and as we follow Christ, one of the things that Lord willing will develop is our ability to make right judgments. That's what it means to be discerning. To be able to make the right judgment on a matter. On our own, left to our own devices and the influence of sin upon our own instincts, we can't trust our heart to just make the right judgments on everything. Instead, we need the input of the Word of God and the counsel of the people of God, and we will become those that are called discerning. Discerning is the result of committing one's life to give thought to the Word of God over time. The Word of God does the faithful work the Lord sends His Word to do. Discerning means to make the right moral judgment. To be able to look at situations, look at opportunities, look at some sort of temptation, and be able to analyze and evaluate properly that you wouldn't have done in that way earlier on in life. And the reason you think about it one way now Different than you did at one point back then is because you've grown. It's the grace of the Lord at work. You see differently. And therefore, you're able to look and, you know, listen, we would love a spotless track record, every one of us, to be able to make the right judgment on every. But here we have the wise of heart called discerning, not because they're, they're sinless, but because their reputation in the eyes of others is that person has discernment. So they're called discerning. That person is a discerning person. If I brought my matters to them, if I brought my questions to them, they're going to help me think through with right judgment about this. So the wise of heart is called discerning because to be wise of heart is to have or possess something that's not going to be hidden for very long. The wise of heart become known as such. And they get called discerning by others. They have things to say. They have wisdom to share. They have judgments to offer. And sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. That line is really important with a biblical theology of speech as a whole. Because it's not just about what you say, but also how you say what you say that matters. Which isn't it only matter that I say what is true. Proverbs says that's not the only thing that matters. We want to say what is true, and we want to say things in the way they ought to be said. This matters. And in verse 21, sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Let's rearrange this and just take the opposite tack for a moment. 
harsh, overbearing speech, speech shuts people down, provokes their defenses, and you can forget productive dialogue at that point. So what's the point of Proverbs here? Are you trying to defeat someone or are you trying to persuade? Because here, the sweetness of speech doesn't mean some sort of sugary thing that's ignoring truth. After all, don't we know Paul's language in Ephesians 4.15? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. So we don't speak falsehood trying to be loving. We speak the truth in love. Which means we want to think about our posture toward our fellow neighbor. There's a, a pastor who said once, We will not treat people beyond the label we give them, which is why it's so important that the Bible gives them the label neighbor. And I never forgot that. I thought that was such a compelling and insightful thing because our culture loves to label people with all sorts of things, usually with reducing someone to a social or political position about something. And all you got to do is turn on the cable news and you can see everybody treating someone else according to a label they have assigned. Now, people are more complicated than just a particular reduced label. And I think the pastor's insight is powerful. We won't treat people beyond the label we give them. So let's give them the label the Bible gives. They're my neighbor. They're my neighbor. And I'm called to love my neighbor as myself. I'm called to think about the good of my neighbor. And ultimately, I want to persuade my neighbor. I want to persuade my neighbor. Notice in verse 21, sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. I don't think this is just about being nice for the sake of being nice or having, as one writer calls it, slick, sugary words trying to manipulate things. That's not what this is at all. And the writer didn't think so either. Instead, it's about recognizing how I present myself can help my case or hurt it. How I'm coming across to another person is going to help win me a hearing with them or it's going to shut things down. And I tell you what, man, Proverbs 16 just seems really relevant to our very divisive, angry culture right now in 2023, doesn't it? Oh my. Think about all the online vitriol and with, you know, election year coming in 2024. All the things around us are only going to ratchet up in every way. All of the revilement, all of the salacious speech and all the exaggerated tones. When you, when you look at Proverbs 16, 21, you realize, you know, believers are meant to stand out in the ways they speak and in the ways they don't speak. And sweetness of speech seems to mean this is what should characterize our way of dealing with someone, restraint. If we come across passionate about the truth, but very angry, then the person we need to persuade of the truth is not going to be as open as we wish they were. But then we come down to a a reality that is true online as a whole. It's a heartbreaking truth, but surely there is indeed the case, observable by many online, that in social media, the goal isn't always to persuade, but simply to rant, simply to bully, simply to offer up one horrible, vile comment after another against it, because the interest is not in persuading. Maybe it's just preaching to one's own tribal uh, group and instincts and say, well, you know, I'm just going to rant about this because I already know the people who are going to agree with me. But sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness, and this ought to be something that's alluring to us. 
Because don't we want to make enemies of the gospel friends of Christ? And I don't mean because we're the Holy Spirit and make them, you know. I'm using this language in a way that recognizes we depend on the Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit to open minds, but we are a means. We are a means through which the Lord reaches the lost. And persuasiveness is increased. The Bible says this. Persuasiveness is increased by the way you speak about things. And you can get in your own evangelistic way by being obstinate, jerky, or just adopting the very worldly postures of those around us who maybe have no knowledge of the gospel or no interest in Christ, but they might hold similar views that you might have in certain political or social positions. And you think, well, I'm just going to take on their tactics. We have to be so careful here in verse 21 that we're discipled and shaped by the right mechanisms. And the word of God in the heart of his people will create discerning people who know how to speak about things. Because in the end, they're not trying to defeat someone. They're trying to win them. They're trying to persuade them. Not with covering up the truth, but by talking about the truth. Now, let us also say... That there will be a recognition in this culture where believers in orthodoxy and conservative political, uh, biblical positions on matters of politics and social issues, we will be more and more the minority with the way things are trending. So we don't think about persuasiveness of speech or sweetness of speech in order to win the approval of the world. We simply think about sweetness of speech that we might gain a hearing with the lost, but even that isn't guaranteed. Truly, it's the case, like John 3 tells us, that the darkness hates the light and loves the deeds of darkness and rejects it. And so we ought not be surprised that even in our best, humble, gentle efforts to be courageous with the truth, that we might not get a hearing in the ears of others with it. The Word of God wouldn't want you to be surprised at that reality either. But it is to say, worldly strategies are not our go-to. We are a kingdom people. We are a kingdom people. And beyond whatever the Lord is doing in the United States or elsewhere, it is the unshakable kingdom of the Lord Christ that we are ultimate citizens of. And this means our allegiance is to Christ. And our sweetness of speech increases perseverance in an age that needs to hear it. Think of Jesus' own ministry in Nazareth. He goes in Luke 4 to Nazareth, and he goes where he had been brought up in Luke 4. He reads from the prophet Isaiah, and he rolls up the scroll, and in Luke chapter 4, verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Listen to this, verse 22, and All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They were marveling at his graciousness. But keep reading. (laughs) In Luke 4, you keep reading. He, He says a prophet is not acceptable in his own hometown. And as he keeps going, by the end of this scene, no matter his gracious words, no matter how winsome he was... It says they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the cliff where their town was built so that they can throw him down. So gracious words are what the Bible exhorts us toward. 
But we cannot secure outcomes by them. We just know that it is more likely to provoke defenses and hostilities by being ungracious, void of compassion, harsh and overbearing. And we have a gospel that in itself is already offensive. The cross is foolishness to the Jew. Stumbling block to the Jew. Foolishness to the Gentile. It is viewed as an offense as sinners are called as such. Told to repent, to believe in Christ. There is an offense to human pride. I, I think what Proverbs is getting at is we have a message of knowing God that by itself is going to be difficult for people to hear. So, as we share the truth, let's not add unnecessary offense to it. Let's not put ourselves as an additional obstacle, so to speak. We also notice in Proverbs 16.22, the effects of wisdom are going to be different on the wise and on the fool. As we speak, Lord willing, with sweetness of speech and an effort to persuade, well, the effects of those words are going to have uh, contrasts, like in verse 22. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. A fountain of life is what wisdom in the heart is like as we share others with others, as we speak with persuasion, as we seek to talk of Christ and tell of the Lord's faithfulness, like Psalm 30 talks about, as is the central core of our life and purpose to praise God, to tell of who he is. That is like a fountain of life for those marked by wisdom. The phrase good sense or a person of understanding is about biblical wisdom here. Good sense, understanding, someone who has that, it is a fountain of life for that person. It is a life-giving reality. It is a benefit to their soul, but not just to them. Because that good sense or that wisdom is used, Lord willing, to increase persuasiveness. This sweetness of speech that starts within the heart that's been shaped by wisdom goes out to others to ebb and flow In relationships. And so for the one who has it, the fountain of life overflows. But the instruction of fools is folly. This part of the line could mean one of two things I don't necessarily think we have to choose. The instruction of fools can simply mean the effort somebody has to try to teach them. So you've got someone, you may not know that they're a fool, but you're going to try to instruct them. And this is a way of saying, trying to instruct a fool ends up getting nowhere. Um, In in other words, it becomes folly itself. It's like when Jesus teaches about casting pearls before swine. You don't always know the person you're dealing with, the kind of makeup or disposition they have toward the Lord until you start sharing with them. And then you may find out that it's like talking to a brick wall, <laughs> as, as you might have heard, where you have, you have some, some experience in the transaction where you think, not only is this not getting through, this person is remaining convinced of their foolish direction. This is just a waste of breath, it seems. So the, instructions of, the instruction of fools is folly. To instruct them may seem to go to no result at all. The other way that this could be taken is that folly is the thing that gets the fool's attention. So it would work this way. 
the instruction of fools, the thing that they sometimes require is to learn the hard way. So that their instruction, they won't heed the wise, so you know what ends up having to teach them? Folly itself. No matter how much you pled with them, and you warned them, and you, and you think, well, I could tell them on that day, I told you so. Like, I, I warned you that this was going to come. I can see where this path is going. But in the end, fools sometimes will heed no other instruction except the wreckage that comes into their life by their own folly to wake them up. We recognize that either of those readings certainly bears out true in human experience. That it can be the case of frustration for the teacher. It's like, I'm just dealing with a fool. They're not listening to anything I'm saying. And it is also the case that the hard consequences of transgression can sometimes be the thing necessary to jar the fool who thought this is going to go well for me, or I'm invincible, or I can handle it, or whatever other deluded thing a fool might tell themselves. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it. Well, don't, let's just think by, by uh, implication here in the form of a question. Wouldn't we want our inner life to be described as a fountain of life? I mean, if you came across a living fountain in the ancient world, that's a score right there, I tell you. Because to have flowing water, living water, this was desirable. You would build villages around this. Civilizations connected to flowing rivers of life. This was such a big deal that you would have something springing up that was life-giving. That's so desirable in a physical, geographical sense for regions. So here in the ancient world, that desirable thing is saying, you know what? Somebody who has wisdom, it's like they've got springs welling up within them. It's like their heart has become a living fountain. Don't you want that to be true? I mean, the opposite is something stale and useless to you and to others. Poisonous and detrimental. Oh, we want a living fountain. And that means we need wisdom. And that means we need to attend to the Word of God. And that means we come to the Lord prayerfully and humbly saying, Lord, guide me away from what is foolish and what is wicked. Lead me in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. That's the way we pray. We want to be wise. In verse 23, the effect of wisdom on speech works like this. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. Judicious is also a word about good judgment. Just like the earlier word that we saw in verse, um, in verse uh, 21. The idea of discerning. That's the word I'm looking for. In verse 21, the word discerning. And then in verse 23, the word judicious, it's the same idea. Being able to think carefully and analyze, evaluate, and be able to make a good move based on a good judgment. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. Here's what that means. Our words flow out of our heart. It doesn't look this way on a medical map if you were opening a, you know, a medical textbook. But your tongue is connected to your heart Biblically, okay? Your tongue is connected to your heart. So that what you have in your heart is what comes out of your mouth. So you know what you and I need is the input of the Word of God upon us. So Lord help us. We need that because our speech is an overflow of what's within. And the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious. There's a thoughtfulness about where those words are going to go. And that matters to the wise. 
They don't want to just say things. They, they don't want to just spout off about this or that. They recognize what I say and the way I say it affects other people. So I want to be courageous with the truth and persuasive with my speech. In verse 23, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. So I think it comes down to, listen, friends, we can get worked up about all sorts of things that are important to us when we are in conversations with people who think differently. But we are not looking around in our culture right now at examples of healthy civil, civ, uh, civic discourse and civil discourse. That's, we're looking at the breakdown of that kind of thing all around us. So this means we have all the more reason to stand out with what we know we ought to prioritize. You and I are going to be neighbors with, co-workers with, friends with, sharing tales, t- uh, tables and meals with people who think very differently than we do about things. Make it your goal to persuade them. To have open conversations and to listen and to share so that you can be committed to the truth, but you're thoughtful about how you're coming across. Because in the end, you know that an open hearing of what you have to say is better than you losing it in the conversation, provoking their defenses, and all of a sudden that's the last conversation you're going to have about that. It adds persuasiveness to his lips. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This means not only what I say, but how I say it must be important to my Christian discipleship. And we don't get any luxury to look at this and say, Well, that applies to other people, but you know I'm just different. No, we are not the exception to the Bible's wisdom. To say the wisdom of the Bible doesn't apply to me, what would that say about you? What would that say about the way you think about your life and what ought to shape it? This is the wisdom of Scripture that ought to shape our tongue. And then in verse 24, well, let me make one other point here about verse 23. People are going to live according to what they're most persuaded by. Everybody does. People are going to live by according to what they're most persuaded by. And we know that around us, people are living according to things that are going to be toward their destruction. They're committed to things that will never satisfy their heart. They have strategies of worldliness and sin that they think are going to get them what their heart wants. And they are living in rebellion before God. And they are on a road of destruction. People are going to live according to what they're most persuaded by. Which means we have have a glorious responsibility and privilege. And that is to sit with people and to seek to make them think about the biggest matters of life and death. Everybody thinks about these things. Everybody you meet thinks about big subjects. And sometimes they just never had somebody broach those topics with them. But they've got thoughts. They've got things that they mull over. They might might not have any reason or any good authority for holding the opinions they do. But perhaps those are the sort of providential inroads you could be granted by the Lord to persuade. So that they could then live according to something greater. Something true. Something beautiful. The gospel. In verse 24... The effect of gracious words on others ends our unit tonight. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. This is a whole life image, isn't it? Sweetness to the soul, that's the inner life. Health to the body, that's a picture of the external self here. Our our limbs, our bodies. So here we have, inwardly and outwardly, all that we are, what is it that is good for us? Well, sweet, gracious words. 
Again, this is not about abandoning what is true for the sake of just trying to say what is culturally appealing. No, there are plenty of uh, examples in the, in the culture where someone just puts their finger to the wind and say, well, this is what people want to hear, so I'm going to sort of go that direction. That's not what this is about in Proverbs 16. This is about being persuasive with what is true, not what is trending. And here in verse 24, gracious words have a sweetness to them. We heard that already, but here's, a, here's an image for you. A honeycomb. Now, I love honey. I know not everybody in this room loves honey, you know. That's okay. Some of you might be allergic to it. Well, the author's not taking that into account either. Substitute whatever thing you need to hear for the same effect to be garnered. Here, gracious words, there's a sweetness to them. This luscious thing coming out of the different cells of the beehive. Here you have this, or rather the honeycomb. And here you have this beautiful, luscious picture here of what is good for the soul and body. Pleasant words. These are words of wisdom. Words of wisdom shaped by the word of God. We, in other words, need to take in what is good and nourishing for our mind and body. That is ultimately found in the scriptures that are meditated upon, shared, persuasively offered. And certainly shared with others. If gracious words are like a honeycomb, then when we speak with others about the things of of Christ and His kingdom, we are extending to them what is sweet. And we're praying for the Lord to awaken the spiritual palate of their soul, that it tastes that way. But we don't say, oh, you know, the Lord's going to do that apart from my word, apart from my words, apart from my involvement. The Lord is pleased To use His people on mission for the glory of His name so that we have gracious words to say. There's a quote wrongly attributed to Francis of Assisi, but I bring it up from time to time to criticize it. And uh, and I'll do so right now. But this quote, it's been on a a lot of uh, memes and t-shirts and things. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Okay, well that sounds good because it sounds like at first we're calling people to live in step with the gospel. Well, to that we say yes and amen. It's that, it's that idea, if necessary, use words. Hold on, hold on, hold on. How is it that someone's going to hear about the message of the cross and the saving grace of God to sinners by just looking at me? Okay, I've got to say something. I've got to tell them about Jesus. I've got to speak to them about who he is. I've got to speak to them about his promises. I've got to tell them about the hope that is to come found in him now. They're not going to look that here. They're not going to get that just by looking. There needs to be hearing. And therefore, we need gracious words. Oh, may the Lord provide them, because as we do so, we will recognize That we're in a world where people have been affected by all sorts of words. Even those of us in this room. We've heard words throughout our lives that have stung, hurt deeply. Things that have been said to us, maybe by a trusted person, a family or a friend, a spouse or a child, a parent or a neighbor. Words that we just don't forget. We carry it with us because words can wound. But I want you to know something about gracious words. And words from the scriptures and words in the community of faith, words can heal as well. Words can bring restoration as well. 
And in our world, there is so much woundedness happening because of words. Let's not add our words to that. There's enough woundedness out there. Let's be agents of restoration, ambassadors for the kingdom in Christ, because His word is a word of life and salvation. Those are the words we have. Yeah, we're jars of clay, but we've got a treasure. And we want people to know of this. This is all part of our Christian discipleship. We all need help with this. There's not any of us who looks at verses 20 through 24 and goes, well, this just doesn't seem relevant to my life because all of my words are, you know. In fact, we would recognize that in the mirror of God's word, the Holy Spirit graciously is at work in us in this very subject. And I love what Mark Dever said one time some years ago about discipling. Because what we're trying to do, friends, is focus on the wisdom of God's Word in our own pursuit of Christ together. And he said, Mark Dever said, discipling is a bunch of church members taking responsibility to prepare one another for glory. That's what discipling is. I love that definition. Discipling is church members taking responsibility to prepare one another for glory. So we're trying to say... We're in this together. With, even with our desire to have tongues that are set apart for the glory of God and the good of neighbor. Oh, how we need one another for this. That our encouragement and our words of healing and restoration would be used by God and all preparing us for glory. And there's just nothing better than that. Let's pray.